this woman back in June of 99, she was age 48 at that time, and she had a right mastectomy for a 6.5 centimeter invasive lobular carcinoma. And at that time, she had 25 positive axillary lymph node. She was ER and PR positive, and HER2 nu was zero at that time. And staging was negative for metastatic disease. She was enrolled onto a clinical trial at that time involving autologous peripheral stem cell transplant. And she started the AC for four cycles. And then at that time, she received two cycles of cytoxin taxol, which was a mobilization regimen at that time, collected enough stem cells. And then about a week before she was actually being admitted to start the study using high-dose chemotherapy, that's when the South African fiasco came out. And so I had a lengthy discussion with her about that and talked to her that now, you know, unlike before, there's no randomized study to even suggest that there was any benefit, blah, blah, blah. And then she, at that time, decided not to proceed. So we were sort of stuck trying to decide how to complete her adjuvant therapy, and we sort of arbitrarily decided to give her two more cycle of just Taxol alone so that it's sort of a modified ACT-ish type of regimen. And this was all completed in March of 2000, she was postmenopausal after that, and she was placed on tamoxifen and received radiation to her chest wall. And she was actually doing very well until about September of 2003. So that's about three and a half years later, remaining on tamoxifen back then. And she developed upper abdominal pain, so some nausea and vomiting. She had upper endoscopy, and it showed a partial obstruction of her gastric outlet area. There were no ulceration, so it didn't look like a primary gastric cancer. And what the endoscopist did is did some really deep biopsies of that area because it looked like there was some extrinsic obstruction. And the pathology revealed an infiltrating carcinoma. It was cytokeratin positive, and there were the classic Indian filing. And in fact, when you compare it with the original invasive lobule that she had, it looked almost identical. She was ER and PR positive, just like before, and she's her to new fish negative with this new biopsy specimen. Detailed staging with CAT scans and bone scans were negative. For distal METs, her markers were normal. And at that time, there was a lot of discussion. So this was in September 2003 about what to do. She's clearly moderately symptomatic. She's still able to eat softs and liquids. And we had decided to try Zalota, although I was concerned about her ability to take the pills. And so she went on that, and after one month, her symptom pretty much resolved. You know, she found that she could eat anything she wanted. Two months later, we did a repeat endoscopy, and the obstruction's gone. So she had a market response to Zalota. And since then, we've been, you know, following intermittently. She doesn't like those endoscopies, and so she refused a lot of them, and so we sort of do it intermittently. But whenever we did do it, it's been looking fine. We do staging intermittently, and there's no evidence of disease, although the CAT scan originally just shows some thickening of her stomach. And I've thrown some PET scans, although we never did a PET scan before, just to sort of monitor her disease, because I'm worried about, obviously, progression. And it's been negative. Everything's been negative, and we recently, actually, just last week, had seen her for follow-up. And she's still on Zalota. So this is three years on Zalota. In terms of quality of life, it's excellent. She's working full-time. She travels. Her major complaint is dry hands. And we've been, over the years, gone down to the dose. And so now she's around 1,500 milligrams per meter square per day. Two weeks on, two weeks off. And that's sort of the schedule that she's been on. The question is, obviously, what to do? Do we 
you know, continue with Zelota? Do we change? I'd like to certainly hear everybody's comment. What are her thoughts? She calls it vitamin X. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with success, I think. And I think in many situations, what we'll do is give chemo, get a good response, and then switch back to hormone therapy. But you already know her disease grew on tamoxifen, and so that, you know, she's not going to get huge... We would guess she probably wouldn't get long-duration response even to an aromatase inhibitor. It's obviously a therapy that's out there for her. But you know, she's tolerating the therapy well. She's had a great response which with what is often a very difficult site of recurrence, You know, where people have nausea, vomiting, can't eat. You can't see it on CT PET because it's not big enough or enough disease. Their stomach looks like linitis plastica. You know, It's a terrible recurrence, which we've seen a lot of that pattern of recurrence with lobular carcinomas. And people who for example, present with diarrhea as their main symptom, this nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, ureteral blockade, essentially hydronephrosis, all of those symptoms. So in this situation, I mean, what a fabulous response. I mean, does see no reason not to continue until progression. Mark, what do we know about the biology of lobular and how does it fit in, if at all, with some of the new classification systems like Charles Peru's classification of breast cancer? You know, there's really not a perfect, clean classification based on global gene expression in the lobular, to my knowledge. I mean, it is a very distinct clinical pathologic entity with a predilection for the pleuropericardial surfaces as well as cirrhosal surfaces in the gut. So it definitely has a distinctive biology, but I don't think that the link with global gene expression profiles gives us a lot of insight into what the next targeted therapy for lobular is going to be. How about Although, response to different chemotherapeutic agents? Any date on that? For example, capecitabine in this? Not to my knowledge, I don't know of any distinctive... Has it been looked at? Are there enough lobulars to really Not look Not that I know of, no. But one thing I would just mention is I think most lobulars, based on talking to Czech Peru, because we do collaborative studies with them, fall into the luminal A or B group. And, yeah, they're ER you know, they would ex- you would expect, you know, this patient had a lot of disease at the beginning. So, you know, whether she's luminal A, very responsive to hormone therapy or not, it's kind of hard to assess. But these strongly ERPR positive tumors tend to fall into that group, which, unless it's extremely low, locally advanced has a better prognosis. But the issue about chemotherapy is interesting because in the slow-growing tumors, you know, giving AC followed by T probably doesn't give you anywhere near the impact as it does in the rapidly proliferating tumors. And we've looked a little in the neoadjuvant setting at what the response is. We already know that pathologic responses are seen in only around 5% of ER-positive disease. And if you take out the lobulars, I mean, you know, because they have such diffuse disease, you know, even if the mass has gone away on exam, you know, you still see nine centimeters of tumor there at the time of surgery. So I think we're really at a situation where we don't understand because there are clearly the more pleomorphic, aggressive lobular cancers that respond very nicely to chemotherapy. And in this case, the patient has benefited tremendously from capcitabine. The other little lesson here is the inverse correlation between lobular and HER2 gene amplification. That's, you know, obviously the situation here. So except for the pleomorphic lobulars where HER2 gene amplification is rarely seen, and the pure lobulars, it's distinctly unusual. Sushio? I want to explore this concept of continuing till progression as opposed to stopping at time of maximal response, uh, perhaps two cycles beyond that. You know, if you look at some of the other stage four cancers that we treat for which we appear to be having better treatments, colon cancer for one and perhaps lung cancer, that concept of perhaps stopping after achieving maximal response and then observing the patients evolving. Now, what's the data in breast cancer? Do we have any or do we just believe that if we stop, the cancer is going to come back and therefore continue? I mean, 
the alternative strategy of switching over to a hormonal therapy if possible is something we all do. But what about just a chemotherapy holiday? And certainly in non-small cell, that's what you do, right? Right. Give your treatment, stop. And that has been looked at in randomized studies, Mark. And the available data on breast cancer, which is all retrospective, unfortunately, suggests that the patients who are able to tolerate continuous chemotherapy do a little bit better, but that's probably just because they have higher performance status and are able to tolerate continuous chemotherapy and would have done better anyway. So I have no objection whatsoever to a holiday if this patient had the least hint of toxicity that's disturbing quality of life. After such a long response, I'd feel quite comfortable giving a drug holiday, and I frequently use that in my own practice. And the, but, the studies that have looked at breaks in chemotherapy haven't shown a difference in outcome, albeit different chemos, et cetera. And then there was the transplant study done by ECOG, I think, that took patients with metastatic disease responding and either transplanted them or kept them on CMF until progression, and there was no difference at all in outcome, even though transplant was the chemo that you gave up front with the holiday. I still think that that you know, probably correlates with you treat to best response, and if you take a holiday, generally people do just as well. They respond again to the next therapy you give them. Although, Sushil, I don't know, you know, in a way, if you think about capecitabine alone as chemotherapy in terms of the lifestyle that's implied with that as opposed to intravenous chemotherapy, maybe, obviously, this woman doesn't seem to have a whole lot of problems with it. Not too many intravenous chemotherapies that you could give for three years and say that, I think. That's true. I mean, I've had a similar patient just like that. I was trying to figure out at two years, do I continue or do I stop? (laughs) Exactly the same story, infiltrating lobular. You're sort of nervous with these patients because clearly she got very aggressive adjuvant chemotherapy and she progressed very quickly afterwards. Oh, not quickly, but, you know, three years afterwards. Since we're talking about quality of life in patients with metastatic breast cancer, women patients often complain most about the hair loss. And that's really most disturbing in the metastatic disease setting. So I'm wondering if you'd make any comments about regimens which are less likely to produce hair loss. You know, it's interesting. One of the first things I do when I'm talking to patients about treatment of metastatic disease, I say, okay, the first thing we have to discuss is how important it is to you not to lose your hair. Because, you know, some patients have really decided they'd rather die than lose their hair. And in those situations, many of them actually will get the taxane a few courses down the road. But they just, psychologically, it's a huge barrier to start with that. And unfortunately, the combination regimens both involve a taxane, so your hair falls out. So, you know, using capsidabine, uh, gemcitabine, venerelbine, even adding in weekly carboplatinum or cisplatinum, generally the patients maintain their hair, doxyl, for example. So there's a lot of different alternatives for our patients to get around the use of taxanes up front unless, you know, there's a situation where a patient has a visceral crisis or, for example, you're combining with bevacizumab.